sure promise from the Lord that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. That if Christ is grabbing hold of you this morning in your life, he will continue to hold on to you until the very end. That is a sure promise that we have. It's one of the reasons why we're gathered here this morning, because we trust that Christ will hold us fast until the very end. My name is John Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany Baptist Church. It brings me joy to bring you God's word this morning. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Hebrews chapter 5 uh, until chapter 6, verse 3, about taking the faith seriously, thinking proactively about Christ and moving on from elementary things. This morning, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. We're going to be looking at the continuation of the author of Hebrews' thoughts in this book. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's going to be on pages uh, 1063 through 64. And if this is the first time that you've used the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are going to be the verse numbers. I'm going to be reading from the very beginning of chapter 6 until verse 12. So... Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on toward maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. Verse 4. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now, we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to be lazy this morning. We don't want to remain stuck on elementary teachings about you, but we want to see and taste your goodness. We want to make it until the end. So we ask, God, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit. Give us sanctified ears and hearts to be able to understand and comprehend your word. We need your help in order to do this. And so we ask that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. My dad got a ticket for not coming to a full stop while turning right on a red light. He had to pay a couple hundred dollars. And at the time, I was a new driver. 
And whenever my dad was with me in the car, he would tell me, son, make sure you come to a full stop whenever you're at a red light. If you do, you're going to get a very expensive ticket. <clears throat> he did this every single time we came to a red light every single time. Make sure you come to a full stop or else you're going to get a very expensive ticket. And after the 52nd time, I was frustrated and said, Dad, stop. You're the one who got the ticket. Why are you telling me to do this? He said, I know that. I'm telling you so you don't make the same mistake that I did. Honestly, telling me two times probably would have been enough. But dad had a point. The best warnings come before consequences happen so that they don't happen. The best warnings come before consequences happen so that they don't happen. Dad warned me and I never got a ticket, at least for that reason. The reason why we hear warnings now is so that in the future we take care to make sure that we avoid the consequences before the stuff that the warning warns about. The best warnings come before consequences happen so that they don't happen. The author of Hebrews this morning wants to give us a warning. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author has given this image about Christians that are wandering through the wilderness of this world, trying to get to the promised land, this promised rest ahead. And now what the author wants to do in, in this section of scripture is to warn us of the consequences of falling away in order to keep us in faith and perseverance, in order to get us to the end. He's telling you to watch out for dangers ahead so that you stay on the right path. So here's the main command for us this morning is, is the same command that you really see throughout the book of Hebrews, which is to believe and persevere. Believe and persevere. And there are two reasons that we'll see in this passage for why we need to believe and persevere. Reason number one, because falling away is deadly. Because falling away is deadly. Reason number two, because hope is certain. Because hope is certain. So reason number one, because falling away is deadly. Reason number two, because hope is certain. If you're not a Christian here this morning, we're really glad that you're here. This passage is primarily directed towards Christians. So if you don't know the good news of Jesus yet, I want to make sure that you hear the gospel. So, so this really is the most important part of the sermon for you, that, that God is a good and holy God. And created the world out of an overflow of his joy and, and created man to be a steward and care over it. But rather than obeying God and following him, we rebelled against him, disobeyed him, and turned away from him. And as a result of that, we deserve to be punished in hell forever because of our rebellion to this holy God. But rather than leaving us in our sin, leaving us hopeless, God out of his kindness sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And he died on the cross bearing the punishment for sins that you and I deserved. And three days later, he rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to urge you, if you turn away from your sin. And trust in Jesus' work on your behalf. You will be forgiven of all unrighteousness. 
and you'll receive eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the most important thing that you can hear this morning. That's what every Christian believes. And we would love to talk to you more about what it looks like to follow Christ. Feel free to grab any of the members around you here to talk to them about what it looks like to follow Jesus. That is the most important thing for you this morning. And this sermon is directed towards people who believe that, who believe in that gospel, that have trusted in Jesus alone, right, to save them from their sins, to give them life everlasting. And, and what the author of Hebrews wants to tell you this morning is to hang on, keep going, believe, and persevere. And here's the first reason why we need to do that. Because falling away is deadly. Because falling away is deadly. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of this coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. Earlier in verses 1 through 3, the author exhorts us to leave elementary teachings about Christ and to go on towards maturity, to leave elementary teaching behind, move on towards maturity. Now in verses 4 through 6, he looks at the consequences of falling away consequences of falling away. And he says that it is impossible for someone who has experienced faith and fallen away from that faith to be renewed to repentance. It's impossible. You can't do it. In other words, if if you believe in Jesus, if you've trusted in him, you've put your faith in him, and then you walk away, if you go away from this Christ, there is zero hope left for you. You have nothing. You can't re-up your subscription again. It's over. It's done. And effectively, what you've done is you've taken that gospel that you just heard here, but Christ good work for you, his dying for you, his rising for you, his ascending into heaven and and sitting on the throne above. And what you do when you walk away from him is you yank him from the heavens, bring him back down to earth and nail him to the cross again. You re-crucify the son. That's pretty intense. And for those of us who who may be freaked out by this warning about what we would do if we we go away from Christ, this re-crucifying him and holding him up there in contempt, if that rattles you, good. It should rattle you. This is a severe warning. Re-crucifying Jesus, not being able to be renewed to repentance, that is a big deal. But we need to make sure that the warning rattles us in the right way. We need to make sure that rattles us in the right way. And so in order to make sure that we understand verses 4 through 6 correctly, it's going to take some brain work. It's going to take some time to examine the scriptures and really understand what verses 4 through 6 is trying to do and what it really means. Which means uh, we're going to be talking about some dense stuff. So pay attention. If you remember two weeks ago, don't be a lazy baby. This is right after that. The author of Hebrews wants you to pay attention, right? To think about what this passage is really talking about. So let let me go over three different ways to look at this passage, okay? Three different views of looking at this passage. The first way is to look at this passage and to say, yes, 
This passage is talking about real Christians, okay? So, so when he's talking about enlightenment, right, uh, tasting of, a, of God's good word, right, that, that's talking about real Christians. And since it's impossible for them to be renewed to repentance, that that means that you can lose your salvation. So that's view number one, that this, that this passage is really talking about Christians, and you really can lose your salvation. Okay, this is view number one. Real Christians, real falling away, real losing salvation. And at first, it seems like this is kind of the most straightforward reading of the passage, right? You read it, it says it's impossible to renew them to repentance. He's describing these people that seem really Christian, right? Enlightened, tasting God's good word, sharing in the Holy Spirit, and they've fallen away. Sounds pretty straightforward. The problem is, we know from other passages in Scripture that you can't lose your salvation. That you can't lose your salvation. So let's go ahead and look at one of them. So keep your finger in, in Hebrews 6. We're going to go back there, but turn back in your Bible to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. So here Jesus is talking about his Father's work. And, and what it means for people that, that come to him. So, so John chapter 6, going to be looking at verses 37 through 40. John 6, 37 through 40. John 6, 37 through 40, it says this. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is pretty clear here. Everyone the Father gives to him comes to him. Right? So, so if the Father's given you to Jesus, if he's predestined you from eternity past, that you will be a child of God, that means you'll come to him. Right? The Father gives it to Christ, you come to Christ. And the one who comes to him, he will never cast out the one who comes to him, he will never cast out. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian. If you can be a genuine Christian and then lose your salvation, then that means that someone who can go to Jesus and goes to him will get cast out, right? And that's just not what Jesus says. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And God will raise you up on the last day. So there is nothing that you can do to lose your salvation. If you're with Christ, you're secure. Nothing's going to change that. Philippians 1.6 would be another example of that. Paul writing to the Philippians, right? He says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So, so if Christ has started a good work in you, if you've come to him and you've put your faith in him, nothing's going to change the trajectory of your life. You're going to be completed. Because it's not you primarily who's kind of jettisoning your own sanctification. It's God's work in you as you obey him, as you follow him. Nothing's going to change that. He will see it to completion. So that first view that the passage is about real Christians and you can lose your salvation is wrong. Okay, that's not the right way to look at verses four through six. It's not talking about real Christians uh, that can actually lose their salvation. He's not saying that about you. He's not saying that you can lose your salvation. The second way to look at the passage is to say that this passage is not about real Christians and you cannot lose your salvation, okay? So this passage is not about real Christians, and you cannot lose 
your salvation. So, so in other words, the people here are people that look like Christians, but aren't really Christians. So they're kind of fake Christians. They, they look like Christians from the ground. So they might have a glimmer of enlightenment, right, to use the text word, but it doesn't mean that they've received like the full light of Christ. Or they'll look at words and it talks about how they, they tasted the heavenly gift, and they'll say things like, well, you know, tasting it is not the same thing as having a full meal. It's kind of like having a, a small appetizer, an hors d'oeuvre of Jesus, right? And then, and then walking away. So then from our point of view on the ground, you, you interact with other Christians, right? People that might even be members of this church, and they profess to be Christians, and you're interacting with them, and then, and then they fall away. They, they walk away, and they reveal themselves to be the fake Christians that they really were. That they might have tasted, but they never really ate. And, and then that means that this text is saying that's impossible to renew those cr- fake Christians to repentance. So, so fake Christians, you cannot lose your salvation. This view is definitely better than the first view. Right, that that's impossible to lose your salvation. It's definitely better than that first view. And a lot of faithful Christians think that this second view is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. So, so if you look in church history, you have like real big titans like John Calvin and John Owen. They all think this way. They all look at this and they say it's fake Christians. And you cannot lose your salvation. But there are some problems with this view. So I'm going to disagree with John Calvin and John Owen. Yikes. Here's the first reason. The language that the author of Hebrews uses to talk about these fake Christians is pretty, like, clearly, explicitly Christian. And he doesn't say that they look that way. He doesn't use light language. He actually uses really strong language. That these people are actual Christians. It's what they actually are. And it becomes clearer when you look at the way that the author of Hebrews uses the words that you see in 4 through 6, like enlightenment and taste. And you see how he uses those same words throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews. Okay, throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews. For example, that word enlightened. Right, is used in Hebrews 10, verse 32, to talk about actual Christians. He says, you have all been enlightened. And he's not talking to them, assuming that there might be fake Christians, like, ooh, like that might not really be you. He's saying that to assure them of the stuff that's actually happened to them. You've received the light of Christ. Right, 2 Corinthians 4 talks about how the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone into the darkness of your heart with the light of Christ. In other words, Genesis 1, no creation. God says, let there be light, and there's light. And Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4 that it takes that same level of miracle, Genesis 1 level, let there be light, level supernatural work, in order for light to shine in your heart. And so this word enlightenment isn't talking about people that just kind of look like they have a flicker of Jesus in them. This is about people that have actually received the light of Jesus. This Genesis 1 miracle has actually happened in their heart. Second example would be that word taste. Okay, that word taste. That word for taste isn't just a sampler. It's an actual, real, full experience. So in Hebrews 2, verse 9, it says that Jesus tasted death for everyone. That same word, taste. Now, I don't think Jesus had an hors d'oeuvre of death. I don't think he just kind of like dipped his pinky toe into the water of death. No, I think he experienced a true, full death for us. He actually died, right? It wasn't just kind of a sort of death. He actually died. He experienced true, full death for us. In the same way, the people here who taste the heavenly gift, right, who taste God's good word, have fully experienced the heavenly gift of salvation, And the last reason why this second view doesn't kind of work is because the primary marker of a Christian in the New Covenant, right? When you look in the New Testament, one of the main ways that they talk about true Christians is receiving the Holy Spirit, right? Receiving the Holy Spirit. If you've received the Holy Spirit, that's a sign that you are a real Christian, 
And here, these people are sharing in the Holy Spirit. They're actually part of that communion. And so we want to be careful that we don't jam our theology into a text where it's not saying what we'd like it to say. So I think it's 100% true that you cannot lose your salvation. But then we shouldn't go from that to just assuming that these people are fake Christians. The text is pretty clear with the language that it uses that it's referring to real Christians. And there's a bigger reason why kind of, or here's another reason, not bigger reason, but another reason why the second view doesn't kind of work out in our heads logically. If this verse, verses four through six, is talking about fake Christians who then kind of fall away, then that means that people who used to profess to be Christians, right, and then fall away, like they don't claim to be Christians anymore, that those people can never be Christians again, right? It says that it is impossible to renew them to repentance. Now, I don't think that's true. I mean, you probably know people, and there's probably even people in this room who grew up in the church that, that professed to be Christians, and then later in their life, they walked away. Right? They, they get enticed by the sins of this world, and, and they stop professing to follow Jesus, and then later in your life, by God's grace, he saves you. Right? You hear the gospel. It, it hits your heart. You actually come back to follow Jesus. And if this passage is talking about fake Christians who profess to follow Jesus and then fall away, then that means that those kinds of people, the people that profess to be Christians, fall away from Jesus and then come back, that those people can never be saved. That the door's shut for them. And I just don't think that's true. And one of the members of our church right now who's under church discipline is in that type of situation. And I think he can be saved. I think there's hope for him. That the Holy Spirit can still strike into his heart and that he can come to know Jesus uh, either truly or come back to him in light of his sin. So if this passage is talking about real Christians, does that mean that you can lose your salvation? I don't think so, right? Because of John 6, 37 through 40, because of Philippians 1, 6. So that leads us to a third view, a third view. Okay, this passage is talking about real Christians, but you cannot lose your salvation. Okay, it's talking about real Christians, but you cannot lose your salvation. Now, that might sound like a contradiction when you first read the passage, right? You're like, okay, I'm reading this. It's talking about people who actually got saved according to what you're saying, John. They got enlightened. They tasted uh, God, God's heavenly gift. They're, they're sharing in the Holy Spirit and says fallen away. Does that mean that you can lose your salvation? Well, let's think a little bit about the purpose of the letter. Good job, Josiah. Good job, parents. Right? Let's look at the purpose of the letter. The reason why the author of Hebrews writes this warning in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is not so that you question your salvation. Right? Notice the tone of verses 4 through 6. He's not trying to get you to look into your past, kind of the stuff that you've done, and look at highlight reel of your life, and then evaluate whether or not you're really a Christian. That's not what he's trying to do. Right? He's, he's not trying to get you to see whether or not you're actually a Christian or not. What he's trying to do is to urge you to keep going in the faith that you actually have. Right? He's writing to Christians He's trying to get them to keep going in the faith that you really have. So he's not talking to fake Christians, trying to give them the gospel, right? He's not trying to threaten real Christians, right, with kind of what, what will happen, right, in, in terms of their life as though that can actually happen. What he's trying to do in effect is he's trying to encourage you to keep going on the right path, to keep going forward, to keep believing and persevering. That's why in verse 9... Uh, of the text, if I could jump ahead a little bit, if you look at Hebrews 6, verse 9, this is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, even though we are speaking this way, right, super heavy, re-crucifying Jesus um, about the consequences of falling away, even though we're speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. So it's clear that the author 
doesn't think that the people that he's writing to are actually going to fall away, right? That's why he uses two different tenses. He's saying those people can fall away, right? It's impossible to renew repentance to those, but for you, I'm confident about greater things. I'm confident that you're going to keep going. I'm confident that you are going to remain faithful. So he warns them, not as a threat, almost like threatening to to yank salvation away from you, but as a means or a way to keep their faith going, as a way to keep their faith going. In other words, they're on the right path, and as he's using warnings, right, to, to talk about what would happen if you were to hypothetically go astray, he's trying to get you to stay on the right path, right? So he's telling you, this is what would happen if you go astray so that you don't go astray. In other words, he's using this warning before the consequences happen so that they don't happen, right? Just like the best kind of warnings, The best warnings come before consequences happen so that they don't happen. There's one guy in church history that kind of holds to this third view, and that man is Charles Spurgeon. So I'm just going to hang on to Spurgeon and let him ride ride me the rest of the way there. Here's his explanation of this verse. But, says one, if Christians cannot fall away, What is the point of putting this text in to frighten like a ghost that doesn't exist? If God has put it in, he has put it in for wise reasons and excellent purposes. It is put in to keep us from falling away. God preserves his children, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is to show what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a steep cliff. What is the best way to keep anyone from going near it? To tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. The fact that we are told the consequences keeps us from it. A friend puts away a cup of arsenic And he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we will drink it? No. He tells us the consequence and is sure we will not do it. So God says, my child, if you fall over this cliff, you will be dashed to pieces. What does a child do? He says, father, keep me. Hold me up and I will be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution. And this holy fear keeps the Christian from falling away, end quote. So the warning is designed to keep us depending on Christ. There are real dangers to falling away, but God will keep holding on to us. The purpose of the warning is to disciple us, to trust God, and keep holding on to him as he holds on to us. It's God telling you, hey, there's a cliff over there while he hangs on to you. Stay with me. Stay with me as we go. It's like a father holding his child's hand while they're hiking. He, He tells the kid, you'll die if you go off this ledge. And if the kid listens to the warning, he's going to depend on his dad more. He's going to calmly walk with his dad. And if he doesn't listen, he's going to yank and cry and scream and create a miserable environment for the dad. But the dad still holds on to him. His grip doesn't loosen at all. If anything, the father's hand gets stronger in light of the child's rebellion. He might even discipline the child to help him realize the potential consequence of his actions. But never for a second is that child unsafe. Unsafe. Does that make sense? So what this passage is trying to do is effectively God spanking you, right? Saying, hey, do you realize what dangers are out there? 
Pay attention. Keep going. Hang on. Don't re-crucify the Son. The same is true for us. If you're with Jesus, you will always be safe. But God loves us too much not to warn us about the dangers ahead. He uses the warnings as a means to continue to keep us safe. So let me echo the words of the, of the author here in telling you, don't fall away. Don't fall away. Re-crucifying Jesus and holding him in contempt is a terrifying thing. And that thought should terrify us. It's the equivalent of God leading us to the edge of this cliff, letting us peek over and seeing how far down you'd fall and you start to shake and get vertigo. But God's still hanging on to you. That's what the author's trying to do. He's getting you to think about re-crucifying Jesus. So listen to Jesus' warning to you today. Leaving him has deadly consequences. That's the first three verses of this passage. Let's look at verse 7. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. Will be burned. This is a similar idea to what you see in verses 4 through 6. See, the ground that produces useful vegetation, right? I don't really eat a ton of veggies, so I don't know what would be useful. So like cabbage, right? Um, that receives a blessing from God, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is currently worthless. It's about to be cursed and it will be burned. And notice here where the if is. I'm going to go through this a little bit quicker, just to reiterate what I'm saying here, right? The if is placed not before the useful vegetation, but before the thorns and thistles, okay? So he's not saying, hey, figure out if you're, if you're a useful vegetable, if you're a carrot, or if you're a thorn. That's not what the author's saying, right? He's not saying figure out if you're a useful vegetable, if you're a thorn, right? He's saying the if is placed before the thorns and thistles, which means he's presuming you are a useful vegetable. If you're a Christian, if you're actually in Christ, you are a carrot, right? But he's saying if you were to be a thorn or a thistle, what would happen to you is you would be burned. You would be cursed. You would be worthless. Now, do you know where in the Bible, uh, where in the Old Testament you see this language of thorns and thistles? Where do you see that language? Yeah, someone said a guard. Yeah, Genesis. We read it, right? That was to prep you for this moment right here, right? In Genesis 3, God curses Adam. In verses 17 through 19, he says this. He says, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. So what's the curse of Adam? That you toil away at the ground, that you work night and day, and the ground produces thorns and thistles. And what Jesus does with the gospel is that he comes to reverse that curse of sin to undo that punishment that was inflicted on Adam, to remove that curse and to bring us back into the garden, that the ground wouldn't produce thorns and thistles again, but that we could dwell with God, right, in the heavenly realms. And what falling away from Christ does effectively is it reverses Christ's work of reversing the curse, right? It tells God, that even though we've been saved from the curse of sin, that we'd rather grow thorns and thistles. It's a rejection of Christ's work. 
This is a kind of looking at the biblical story, another angle of saying what you'd be doing is re-crucifying Jesus right? and holding him up to contempt. It's, it's undoing the undoing of sin, saying, I'll take sin back. And what God wants to do is to urge us to keep persevering by warning us of the consequences of falling away. This is why we warn one another about the consequences of sin. Secure salvation should make us take sin more seriously, not less. A sign of, of mature Christianity isn't that you're just so comfortable in Jesus that you dilly-dally and do whatever you want. A sign of mature Christianity is that you take sin more seriously because of what falling away would, would mean in light of what the gospel has done for you. The good vegetation that we produce should lead us to hate sin and to desire to serve God more. And what God's doing with this passage is he's watering us with the word in order to grow that good fruit of perseverance. Which means that when we exhort one another, you need to have a combination of confidence and concern. A confidence and concern. What do I mean by that? When you exhort someone to follow Jesus, don't threaten them as though Jesus is somehow going to go away. Right? Remind them about the gospel. Right? Remind them what Christ has done for them. Point them to the grace that you have in Christ. But that confidence in their salvation should always be coupled with a concern for their soul as you continue to walk in Christ. You need to have both. If you miss one, you miss everything, right? So some people, right, are so overwhelmed by their sin and the enormity of their sin that they feel like Christ can't overcome it. For those people, you usually need to lean more heavily into confidence, right? You need to make Jesus bigger than their sin. But some people, in light of thinking about what Christ has done for them, tend to minimize their sin, Right? You, you hear language about justifying it, trying to make it sound like it, it wasn't that big of a deal or it wasn't as bad as last time. What you need to do in those moments is out of concern for them, help them feel the gravity of their sin. It's what the author of Hebrews is doing. You're taking Jesus and you're putting nails back in his hands. That's a genuine concern, right? He's elevating the gravity of sin in their hearts. And then what he does is he makes Jesus even bigger, right? So you want big sin, bigger Jesus. You want both confidence and concern. So when you interact with your fellow church members that you're responsible for, you're interacting with them and you want to push them towards Christ and to follow Jesus, warn them of their sin and point them to Christ. Do both. That's reason number one, because falling away is deadly. So that's why we should believe and persevere, because falling away is deadly. Here's point number two, and point number two is shorter. Because hope is certain. Because hope is certain. Let's look at verses 9 through 10. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. The author of Hebrews is making clear that he's not afraid that these people are going to fall away, right? Again, if you look at verse four, he's talking about those people, right? Those who are enlightened that fall away. But now he shifts from the third person about those people to the second person in your case. And rather than being afraid that they might receive judgment from God, he's confident that they are going to receive better things that apply to salvation. And why is he confident? Because, according to verse 10, God is just. Because God is just. He will not forget the work and the love you demonstrate in his name by serving the saints. And, and look again at verse 10 there. Why does he say that he will not forget your work? He uses a negative there, right? Two negatives, right? Forgetting, he will not, right? Why doesn't he just say he will remember your work? 
Because a lot of the time, it feels like God forgets our work, right? It feels like God forgets our work. We've all felt this before. When you work hard, right, you come early, you set up, you're caring for others, you're going out of your way to answer requests on the email, right? You serve the body, you burden yourself to care for them, you put your name on every single meal train that comes out, and no one seems to notice. People receive their meals like you work for them in room service, shooing you away. Everyone ignores your work and sound until something goes wrong, and then they stare lasers of frustration in your direction. After a while, it can start to feel like all the things that you're doing for the Lord is just screaming into the void. No one notices. No one cares. And you start to ask, is this fair? Is God just? Does anyone see me? And God's answer isn't disappointment. He doesn't fire back with try harder or serve with a happy heart or if you don't have love, you're a clinging gong. His answer here is I see you. I'm a just God. And because I'm just, I see every good thing that you do, and I delight in it. And I delight in it. We tend to think about God's justice with him punishing sinners. And make no mistake, God is just. He will judge sinners. But God's justice doesn't just mean that he condemns evil, but that he also recognizes good. They recognize as good. God sees every single good deed that you've done for the saints. Every single ride, every single meal, every single chair in your hand. He sees it all. And more than just a tangible evidence of kind of all the work that you've done, this output, he sees your heart. He sees the love that you have that you demonstrate through good works that you do for others. He sees it all. God sees it all. So if you serve our church in any way, whether it's running errands for a church member, volunteering in children's ministry, helping set up in service, answering requests from the church email, proactively helping members in need, I want you to know that I am so grateful for you I'm so grateful for you. You are some of the, the most tangible examples of Christ's love demonstrated in my life. Right? My quarantine was a delight. People got to bring me food, check in on me, let me know that they love me. Such a joy. And I want you to know that my gratitude deep in my heart pales in comparison to the delight that the Father has in you. God will reward you for your work because he's a just God. He sees everything. Verse 11. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. In light of the confidence that the author has, he exhorts them again to diligently pursue or persevere, right? To keep pressing until the end. And he calls us to imitate those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. That, that that's how you make it to the end. The way you make it to the end is through faith, perseverance. That's the main command this morning and throughout really the whole book. Believe and persevere. That doesn't mean that there aren't difficulties. Part of the reason why God exhorts us to, to believe and persevere is because doubt and trials are going to come. They're going to challenge your faith and, and, and your perseverance. But what we do as Christians is we diligently press for the full assurance of our hope until the end. That, that we're pushing to get to the promised land to come. And notice that in verse 11, it says that we have full assurance of a hope until the end. 
We're not told to persevere for the sake of persevering, right? We're not told to just believe in believing. We're not Ted Lasso, right? Or because it builds character, but because we're trusting that there's something actually in store for us. That there's a real reward ahead. We all work hard at things that we're confident are going to pay out. We all work hard at things that we are confident will pay out. I remember during the pandemic when I first heard about stimulus checks that would be coming out, my eyes widened as I thought about free money. <laughs> I saw the news report, right, as I read through it, the prerequisite, a 2019 tax return. And you know what I did? I diligently filed my taxes. Right? I had never been so excited to do my taxes. Not because I love doing my taxes, right? Taxes themselves is really terrible. But because I had full assurance of the hope that was to come. In the same way, Jesus talks about the man who discovers treasure in a field and in his joy sells everything he has so he could buy that field. God has promised you something far more precious than a stimmy check. He's offered you himself, right? A paradise of true rest. And this isn't something that God just kind of dangles in front of you like a carrot on a stick, threatening to kind of remove it at the slice whiff of disobedience. This promised rest is a guarantee. You will get it. And if you're in Christ, God cannot reject you any more than he can reject himself. The author talks more about that in the next section. I really wanted to put that section in this sermon. There's so many good things there, but I ran out of time while I was writing. So I'll have to save that for the next sermon whenever that will happen. But the point is that God is promising you that this reward is going to come. So he's warning you about the pitfalls along the way, but he's also trying to get you to keep your eyes on the prize, to look ahead, and he will give it to you. There's full assurance here. And so we can keep looking ahead. We can keep pressing on in good works because we know that the reward is coming. So brothers and sisters in Christ, keep going. Keep going. Believe and persevere. And that's why we could sing words like, Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone. Hope is sure. Christ is ours forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that this hope is sure. We thank you that you do guard us from potential pitfalls and that you love us enough to warn us about the dangers that, that come ahead. So I pray, God, that by your spirit that you would continue to use warnings like these, real means to keep us on the faithful path, to keep us following you. And Lord, help us to keep our eyes ahead and to genuinely desire this rest to come so much that even the hardest difficulties of our duties become delight in light of the reward that is to come. We need your help for this, so we ask that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.